all about. Saying, answering the question, can anything or anyone bring us true satisfaction in life? And it really all centers around the themes of trust and faith. A pastor of a Baptist church in Louisiana by the name of James Brown, not the James Brown, uh, but a pastor named James Brown tells a story of how he learned trust. He says, some years ago when I was learning to fly, my instructor told me to put the plane into a steep and extended dive. I was totally unprepared for what was about to happen. After a brief time, the engine actually stalled and the plane began to plunge out of control. It soon became evident as I frantically looked at my instructor that he wasn't going to help me at all. After a few seconds, which seemed like an eternity, my mind began to function again, he writes, and I quickly corrected the situation. Immediately, I turned to my instructor and began to vent my frustrations on him. I said, I was so scared. Why didn't you help me? And he very calmly said this to me. He said, there is no position that you can get this airplane into that I cannot get you out of. If you want to learn to fly, go up there and do it again. And that pastor says at that moment, he, God was telling him in his deepest part of his soul, remember this. As you serve me, there is no situation that you can get yourself into that I cannot get you out of. If you trust me, you'll be all right. And James Brown says, as I reflect on my ministry over the last 20 years, that lesson has proved to be true over and over and over again. And trust in God, specifically trust in Jesus Christ, is what Luke 18 is all about. Jesus tells us in a variety of ways in this chapter. He tells us two different parables. He has two different interactions, one with children, one with a really, really rich guy. And finally, he backs it all up by performing an incredible miracle. Well, we're going to begin with uh, the first eight verses of Luke 18. So if you have your print Bible, I encourage you to open that, or you can start the app on your smartphone or follow along on the screen. Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with this plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to, me, to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's a fascinating parable. And the point really is the contrast. Some people have taken this parable to mean the only way to see results in prayer 
is keep on badgering God. If you just pray enough times, if you just keep knocking on the door enough times, finally we will wear God down and he will answer our prayers. That's not the point of the parable. The the point is the contrast. Jesus shows this, this widow who's crying out for justice and this unjust judge, and she says, she got justice just through sheer persistence and not willing to, to let it go. She just kept on going. He says, how much more will a loving God answer and hear our prayers? And he says very much the contrast is that the, justi- the judge is unjust, but God is purely just. He's totally holy. He will always do the right thing. And so there's very much a contrast there. All right. And then, as I said, at the end of the chapter, there's actually a miracle that occurs. And Jesus has a chance to put the words of this parable into action. Pick it up. We're going to drop down to verse 35. Luke 18, 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. The first thing we need to see is that the crowd was trying to stop this guy. He was crying out and they said, shh, be quiet, don't bother Jesus. But this guy instinctively knew his one and only chance was for Jesus to hear him. And just like that parable said, God is not like an unjust judge. We don't have to repeatedly knock on his door and wear him down with requests. God hears. And God in Christ acts this out. He hears the cry of this guy blinded from birth he's reduced to begging it's the only way he can make a living in first century society but jesus hears that request and he says what do you want me to do for you and he says i want to see and that is so analogous to you and i in prayer sometimes we cry out lord i'm in a mess i can't see my way out in fact i'm not sure how i even got in this mess but I know my only chance out is you. We are blind in our desperation, but Christ still hears us. The crowd tries to silence the man, but he calls out to Jesus all the louder. The blind beggar didn't have to act like the woman, constantly complaining to the judge day after day. The blind beggar didn't have to wear Jesus down for him to hear and heal. He simply took a step of faith. The main issue here is faith. Are we willing to trust Christ, both for the assurance of hearing our request, but also to answer the request? 
even if the answer is different than we had imagined. Well, from a parable and a healing, we move now to about a parable, how God turns everything upside down. We're going to jump back down to verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I said at the beginning that the crucial bottom line of this entire chapter is faith and trust in God to provide for us, whether that be our daily needs or eternal salvation. And this parable fits right into that with its opening line. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told the parable. Jesus could look out at this crowd that he was talking to. He could see people and interacted with them that their, their hope of salvation was ultimately not in God. It was actually in their own performance. That's where their hope of salvation lay. They thought, as long as I keep all the rules, as long as I tip the balance scale in my favor, as long as I do more good than bad, as long as I keep the Ten Commandments, as long as I tithe to the temple, as long as I do all these good things, then that's my ticket into heaven. That's what will assure me. The text tells us very plainly they were confident in their own righteousness. Now, Jesus created this story, this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But those are both characters that this crowd would have seen very often. Pharisees were, were very active in Jewish society. And just like this guy, they were very outward in their their kind of declaration of how good they were and how close they were following God's law. And tax collectors, you could see them all over the place. Now, the tax collector, in order to properly understand this parable, we've got to understand that in first century Jewish culture, a tax collector was essentially the lowest of the low. He was the scumbag of all scumbags. Now, why did Jewish people hate tax collectors so much? Well, number one, they were viewed as traitors. So the Romans were in charge. The Romans had conquered the country, and they would come in, and they would hire Jewish people to be the tax collectors. And they would say, here's what you need to charge. Here are the taxes. Go and do it. And so the average Jew looked at their fellow Jews collecting taxes for the evil foreign empire that was in control of their country, and the hatred and the disgust just welled up in them. They saw them as traitors. But it was worse than that, because the Romans essentially said to the tax collectors, if you want to make a living, just charge people extra. There's the tax amount. 
you just charge them extra. Whatever you charge, that's yours to keep, just as long as we get the taxes. So the average Jew didn't just look at them as traitors, they looked at them as thieves, stealing from their own people. And the end of the parable would have been so shocking for Jesus' listeners as good first century Jews. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And here is Jesus' zinger of a punchline. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now we hear that parable and we go, yeah, that makes sense. That's what Jesus teaches. That crowd, when they first heard that, they would have been, you can't be serious, Jesus. This is what you're actually saying? You're saying the tax collector is justified before God? Jesus is reinforcing the dominant theme that salvation is found by faith and trust in God alone. You can't trust your money. You can't trust your own actions. You can't trust your reputation. Nothing will get the job done except faith and trust in God. Amazing. I love how this chapter just fits together. And the heart of it is Jesus' interaction both with children and with an extremely rich young ruler. We're going to pick it up in verse 15. Luke 18, beginning in verse 15. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Now, this short account has a lot to teach us about how God views babies and young children. They are precious and valued in his sight. And the amazing part is, Jesus has time for him. Now, that struck me this week when I was preparing this sermon. A lot of us live pretty busy, crazy lives. As adults, we are running around doing a million things. But here is Jesus, the Savior of the world, the guy with the most important job in all of history, the person with the weight of the world on his shoulders, and Jesus stopped and took time to bless babies and talk with kids. Now Luke, the man who wrote this gospel account of Jesus' whole life, birth, ministry, death, resurrection, did so with intentional design under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And Luke puts this first interaction with Jesus with babies and children, Luke puts it back to back with Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler. The reason Luke stacks these two accounts together, we will discover, is to emphasize and hammer home the main point to us. Trust and faith in God with our very lives each and every day. That's why when the disciples, in kind of another display of misguided zeal, try to discourage people from bringing babies and children to Jesus, Jesus corrects them instantly with his famous reply. 
Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So the obvious question is, how do children receive the kingdom of God? Well, they receive it with total trust, total acceptance. They have open hearts to hear the truth. They see it simply and they believe it. And Jesus ultimately says, even as adults, that's the ultimate place we need to get to. We may have a million objections. We may have a million reasons why we can't believe. But at the end of the day, where it all ends up is a childlike faith that says, God, I'm willing to trust. I'm willing to take that step of faith. Well, now we move from kind of babies and children. We move to this rich young ruler. So we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Luke 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept. Since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come. Eternal life. Amazing interaction. Well, I did my nerd thing this week and translated a section of these verses from the original Greek into English, and I learned a few facts that are helpful. In verse 18, we read that this young man is a ruler, he's young, and that he was very wealthy. Now, we kind of read that in English and we go, yeah, okay, he is very wealthy. But in Greek, there's two words that are kind of redundant. You don't need these two words back to back. One would have been good enough. The two Greek words are plusius and sphadra. And the first one, plusius, means having an abundance of earthly possessions that exceeds normal experience. Wealthy. And the second one, Sphodra, is a very high point on a scale of extent. Very much, extremely, greatly. Now, whenever that happens in Greek, whenever you stack two kind of redundant words on top of each other, it's trying to tell you this is the most. This is the extreme. So this wasn't just a rich guy wandering around. 
This guy would have been one of the few wealthiest people in the entire country. In terms of maybe our province of British Columbia, I was thinking, who's really wealthy in our province? And uh, Jimmy Pattison came to mind, the guy who owns all the Save-On food stores and all the rest. This is Jimmy Pattison kind of wealth. This isn't just a local guy who has a lot of money. This is over-the-top, incredible, off-the-charts money. So this really rich guy has a question for Jesus, and he starts in this interaction by calling him good teacher. Now, don't you love Jesus? Nothing gets past him. He immediately stops and goes, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Now, what is Jesus' intention with that? It could be that Jesus is him kind of pressing the implication of that. In effect, saying, realize that if you call me good, you're calling me God. Now, there may be a seed of that in Jesus' reply, but pro- and probably more for our benefit as readers than the actual rich young ruler. The more probable explanation is that Jesus is setting up his authority. If you recognize me as the teacher of God's wisdom and you are calling me good, a title that God alone deserves, then you should respond to the one who is bringing God's teaching. In a word, trust me. Trust what I'm going to tell you. And that really, again, hits our main theme of this entire chapter. It's trust in God. Is this guy trusting God with his life and eternal salvation, or is he trusting his wealth? Now, it is moments like these that separate Jesus from every other teacher in all of history. Jesus stands as the greatest teacher because of things like this. Jesus zeroes in on the guy's heart. It's like a laser beam to the actual issue. So Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, go sell your possessions and distribute the money to the poor. Now, here's what I did this week. I took a little mental exercise and I thought, what if the guy had done what Jesus asked? What would that have looked like in first century Jewish culture? Now, there weren't banks. People had their wealth tied up in things, in possessions. So if this guy was off the charts, extremely over-the-top wealthy, he would have owned big things. I thought, what's a typical thing they would have owned? How about a vineyard? Now, it costs a lot of money to have the land, get all the grapes, tend it, all that kind of stuff. So this guy would have had ownership of this vineyard. Now, in order to do what Jesus said, go, take the things that you own and begin to sell them. How would the guy sell a vineyard? Well, he'd let it be known in the community, I'm going to put my vineyard up for sale. People would say, oh, it's an amazing vineyard. I want to own that. He would collect bids. People would say, well, I'm willing to pay this. I'm willing to pay this. He would look at all the offers, who's the most trustworthy, and he would make a good choice. He would sell the land. He would take all of that money. Now, how is he going to distribute that to the poor? Well, being a good Jew, he would immediately give a portion to the temple. That's part of the way he would look after the poor. Then in wherever he was living, in whatever town, he would have a local synagogue. He would give the part of the money to the synagogue. 
And then probably the biggest part, he would say, now how am I going to distribute this to the poor? And one of the ways that we constantly see in the Bible is they would throw a huge banquet. So this guy would probably throw an over-the-top banquet. He would gather all the poor. They would come to the banquet. And this guy would say, I have been challenged to follow Jesus the rabbi. He has turned my life upside down. He has commanded me to sell my stuff and bless you as the poor. Now, we're sharing an incredible meal today, and that's a good start, but this isn't going to sustain you throughout your life. So what I want you to do is go talk to my friend Obed, who owns whatever thing it was. He needs people for working in his fields. He can give you a job. And this guy would start to lift these people out of poverty. Now, if you think about it, what Jesus was actually telling this off-the-charts, extremely wealthy guy to do would be the most fun this guy could ever have. And I have talked to wealthy Christian people who have been challenged to give away what they have. And they said there is no greater sense of joy or purpose than giving away to those in need what we have. And Jesus knew what he was calling this guy to because he says, when you've done all that, come and follow me. Now, here's the crucial thing. If this guy did this, it would take him years to sell off all of his possessions and bless the poor. Now, when this guy had finally done it, say it took him three and a half years to accomplish that, and he finally reduced himself to having almost no wealth, then where would his trust be? It would be in God, like you and I and everyone else has to do every single day. Trust and dependency on God is the central issue here. Now, people have read this parable and misunderstood this passage. And they think, well, maybe Jesus is calling all people everywhere just to sell everything we have and give it all to the poor. Now, that's not the right application because if you are someone who doesn't have a lot of money, you have learned trust in God. You have learned that you can't trust your bank account. you got to trust in God. And he's the one who continually rescues you. So this may not be the lesson, the exact same lesson that this rich young ruler needed to, to learn. The main issue is our trust in God. It may be that we're totally fine with trusting God with our finances. It may be in other areas of our life where we just can't bring ourselves to trust God, to look to him in faith. Now, Jesus knew the perfect challenge to hit this guy straight in the heart. The main issue that was keeping him from his spiritual growth. Now, Mark tells exactly the same story in his gospel, and he includes this incredible little detail. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. You see, I think so many of people have read this story saying, man, following Jesus is just awful. 
Your life will be drained of its joy and pleasure. You will definitely have to give every penny of money you have away if you truly want to be a follower of Jesus. The real truth is, Jesus isn't trying to destroy this guy's life. He is trying to actually free him to have a more rewarding, fulfilling, and purpose-filled life, both in the present and in eternity when he dies. Jesus is trying to free this guy from putting all of his trust in his wealth. He is challenging this guy to go on a different life path, a life of dependency and trust in God. The the exceedingly rich young ruler's response, however, is pretty haunting. But when he heard this, he became very sad and deeply grieved, for he had extreme wealth. And that is the brokenness of our human condition. That whatever is wrapping us up in life, whatever chains hold us down, when Jesus comes and says, I've got a different life for you. I've got a better life. you got to give that up and you got to trust me. And in our human brokenness, we say, Jesus, that sounds great, but I can't do it. I'm not willing. And that is so sad. I was thinking, what would this look like maybe in our modern Canadian society? And it seems like maybe a young Canadian woman's response is, but when she heard this, she became very sad and grieved, for she had an extreme addiction to drugs and wouldn't give it up. Or maybe another person became very sad and grieved because they couldn't walk away from their social media fame and excessive sexually explicit posts that brought her fame. People can get addicted to a thousand different things and ultimately put those thing, their trust in those things rather than in God. And Jesus cuts through all of it, goes straight to the heart of the matter, the matter of our hearts. Who or what do we put our trust in? Now all of that, helps set us up for what Jesus means when he makes his next observation. But when Jesus looked at him and said, it is extremely difficult, with extreme difficulty does a wealthy person enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the really rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now I've heard sermons on this. Caleb, do you want to flip to the next slide? This is a scholar named William Hendrickson, and this is what he said. He said, The Lord means that for a rich man or woman in their own power to try to work or worm their way into the kingdom of God is impossible. So powerful is the hold which wealth has on the heart of the natural man. He is held fast by its bewitching charm and is thereby perverted from obtaining the attitude of heart and mind necessary for entrance into God's kingdom. I've heard sermons where people tried to explain this and they said, well, actually the eye of a needle is the gate in the middle of the wall of Jerusalem and a camel would have to get down on its knees to go through this narrow, small little gate. They would have had to remove the burden the camel was bearing and then pull the camel through and then let it stand up again. And in that way, it's, you know, it's possible that a camel could get through the eye of a needle. That's not actually what Jesus is saying. He's actually just saying it's impossible. 
a little tiny needle and you're trying to jam a camel through it. Absolutely not going to happen. And Jesus, and then everyone has the honest reaction, well, if that's impossible, who can be saved? Maybe nobody can. And Jesus says this incredible line. He says, with man, things aren't possible. With God, all things are possible. And what Jesus is saying is the heart of this young ruler was so tied to his wealth that he couldn't imagine following Jesus. But that is not true for all people in every place in every time period. That the Holy Spirit of God is powerful enough to come inside of us and change our hearts and to switch what we love. There was a man named George Carroll. He was born in 1855 in Louisiana. He eventually got married, moved to a town called Beaumont, Texas, and his father started a chain of lumber companies in 1868. Carroll worked for his father, managed to become the head of the family business. And then in 1892, he invested in this new thing called oil. And he invested heavily, took almost all of his wealth and invested in this oil drilling company. Well, it exploded. Lots of oil in Texas, and he became extremely rich. But Carroll was a follower of Christ, and he looked around And he realized that all this wealth flooding into the state of Texas wasn't actually helping people. It was starting to corrupt them. People were starting to go off and live in all kinds of crazy directions. He actually thought, well, maybe I should try to be the mayor. And so he ran for office, but he never got in. No one ever voted for him. But he loved his little Baptist church, and he thought, you know what? This is one of the avenues I can use to help make this a better place. So he gave a huge amount of his money to the Baptist church. And they, in turn, started blessing their community. Then there was a a university, a Christian university, and they needed help. So he gave a huge amount of wealth there. And then he says, you know what? I'm not done. We got more stuff in this town that needs correcting. And so the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association, at that point in history was a very... Christian evangelical thing. And he said the YMCA is a perfect vehicle. And so he gave almost all of the rest of his wealth to the YMCA. And he built the local thing and helped so many people. When he finally passed away at the end of his 80th year of life, he had almost nothing left. And he actually died in a small room in the very YMCA that he had helped fund. So what Jesus said, what is impossible with people, is possible with God. This rich guy, the camel, actually got through the eye of the needle. And he gave away every penny God had blessed him with. And in doing so, created a phenomenal legacy in that place. Now the bottom line for Jesus was, who or what is your trust in? Your money or God? And that's where I want to end today. The first parable of the widow and the unjust judge challenged us to think about God in a different way. He's not the God who stingily has his arms folded and refuses to listen when we pray or or hear our requests or grant them. He's in fact loving. 
Jesus showed us this heart when he healed that blind beggar. Then the focus shifts from trusting God with our immediate physical needs to learning to trust God for our ultimate salvation. We saw the incredible contrast between the Pharisee and the tax collector. And we see the same theme played out with Jesus and his interaction with the rich young ruler. We began the service with our little pre-service rendition of Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. After walking through Luke chapter 18, I want to boldly declare to you that the Rolling Stones were wrong. You can get some satisfaction. And the reason we can is because of Jesus Christ. A life of satisfaction is possible. And I don't want any of us to walk out of here, myself included this morning, still trusting in ourselves, our money, our reputation, anything that we think can get us there. God in Christ is the only one fully trustworthy to give us satisfaction in this life now and in eternity to come. Dan, will you come and pray for us?